go to the book of James. So if you want to, it's in the same general neighborhood of the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at a particular portion of James chapter 1. I actually looked back at my notes and I taught through this material in 2007 in Faith Builders. I'm curious, how many of you were in this class in 2007? Okay, there's a few of you. So if you have notes in your Bible, it's not an accident. Um, although my notes, my notes have changed since 2007 on this. But we're going to be specifically looking at James chapter 1, and we're going to camp out primarily in verses 16 and 17, although I may, depending on time, uh, briefly touch on verse 18. But let me read this text, and we'll get started, beginning at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. As I was pondering where to go and what to study, the issue of trials came into my mind, and obviously the book of James deals with trials. The beginning point of the book focuses on that, that we're to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And ultimately the reason is because these trials bring about mature Christian character. A lot of my thinking was for my brother Bruce Mills. Their life changed permanently. They don't even know the full extent of the change because now probably his parents aren't going to be able to live independently. His father's recovering and having a a wife who is paralyzed, can't even comprehend all that's going to happen with Bruce and Marcia. In fact, as we were praying this morning with Pastor Steve, Bruce was going through a, a list of the people who have passed away this year. There was a memorial service yesterday, and it's amazing the number of people even who have passed away at Lakeside and all of the changes that go with that. And then as I look around at society, as the Scriptures say it would be, things go from bad to worse. And you look around and it just gets worse and worse. And the world seems to be a more dangerous place and on and on. And yet the comfort that we take from all of that is that the God that we serve is in charge. He rules everything. I've thought many times about Jesus' statement that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's, not just God's knowledge, but God's will. You look at the weather and the storms and everything else that come through life, and even if God cares about some little creature, and the animal rights people wouldn't like it, but Jesus said, how much more valuable are you? Created in the image of God, and us as his children redeemed by his blood, we have a special place. Interesting to me, when you see the New Testament, and I'm sure every generation of people could say that, but it's almost as though... You look at it and you go, wow, it looks like it was written for us today. Because, of course, it was. As it was for people a century ago, and the century before that, and the century before that. 
But when I look at the book of James, you had Christians who were enduring a lot. Just like Hebrews, the book of James was written primarily to a Jewish church. To the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, there had been persecution, Jewish people were scattered. So very similar backgrounds, which means the issues of family pressure and religious pressure and all those things would have been brought to bear on these individuals. In addition to that, they lived in a very corrupt society. I, I realize America is bad. If you look at the lives of the Caesars who were king after king under the Roman system, they make our worst president look like a choir boy. These were vile, vile, wicked, wicked men. You read through the book of James and it appears that the wealthy people were ruthlessly exploiting poorer people. If you look in our current system, and I am a a big fan of America, we have the best system devised, but it reminds you of employers that are chiseling and chiseling and chiseling and squeezing employees to the point of breaking. And people are getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier at the top, and people at the bottom are getting shoved and pushed. And we know that brothers and sisters in Christ are going through financial difficulties and challenges. And what the Spirit of God was conveying to James and what God knows about us is in the midst of all these types of trials, it's easy for us to get distracted. It's easy for us to lose hope. It's easy for us to take our eyes off of Jesus and get turned around in different directions. And so I think in many respects, the book of James is one of the most comforting books to us Because in the midst of trials and temptations, James is very specific to tell you how to approach it. As I mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, he tells you, if you're going through a trial right now, one of the reasons God's allowing that trial is to develop your Christian character. God wants you to be more like Christ. God wants you to mature in the faith. One of the ways that he does this is through these trials. But an interesting thing was occurring with the people that James was writing to, And that the midst of the trial, some of them not only were just wavering, but some of them had completely wrong thinking. They were so overwhelmed by what was going on that in one sense they were starting to point an accusatory finger at God. Now the beginning of the book of James is talking about external trials, things that come around you and people were being swamped. It's like they were in a small boat out in the middle of the ocean, the waves were splashing on top of them and they were in danger of sinking. But there's a little bit of a different twist in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And then he goes on to say that ultimately it's the problem of our own lust, meaning the inordinate desires of our own heart that want to sin. And ultimately sin is what brings forth death. And and what was occurring was this. You had individuals that were already struggling. Life on the outside was just swamping the boat. They're bailing as quick as they can just to stay afloat. And then in the midst of that, they understood that they were struggling with sin in their own heart. Any one of you here that has gone through a trial understands that in the midst of the trial, the temptation to sin doesn't suddenly go away. 
oh, now it'll be easy to live godly because I'm in the midst of the trial. There's no temptation. No, there's still temptation to sin no matter what's going on. And what was happening to these individuals that James was writing to was that some of them were so overwhelmed externally that when they were struggling with their own internal temptations, they'd almost throw up their hands and say, God, this is your fault. I'm already overwhelmed. God, you did this. I can't handle it. I'm tempted to sin. God, this is all you. You could almost picture somebody saying, either through exasperation or otherwise, I'm in a situation, God, I can't, I can't handle it, and this is your doing. That's the whole point of verse 13, is don't do that. Don't blame God because you have a desire to sin. The comfort of 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you, but such is common to man. As God is faithful, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But verse 16 really picks up on this idea of the need in the midst of all that's going on to not be taken apart. So I'm going to go just a couple of things of how to guard your mind in the midst of trials and temptations. How to guard your thinking so that if you're in that situation where you're overwhelmed and things are coming at you from every direction, how do you keep your focus? And the first point is this, of guarding your mind is this. Don't be deceived by circumstances. Don't be deceived by circumstances. I mean, it couldn't be more clearly stated in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. I mean, he loves them. He cares for them. This is not some harsh attack on them. He loves them. He doesn't want them to struggle. He doesn't want them turned aside. But he understood what was going on. The reason he even offered a reprove like he did in verse 13 was because it's easy for Christians' minds to be deceived by all that's swirling on around us. It's a forceful imperative. Don't be deceived. In fact, the way the phrase is structured originally, it's as, it seems as though the best understanding is that some people were already being deceived and he's saying stop being deceived. It's not even just all perspective. It's that some people that were receiving this letter were deceived and he was saying, stop. Probably the type of people in verse 13 who had become so distraught and exasperated that they were pointing the finger at God for their struggles. He doesn't want their minds going into error. He wants them fixated on the truth. It can happen to us to where we feel overwhelmed and we think, well, God, if you wanted me to succeed, you would have given me some different circumstances. I'm going to pack it in. I'm done. And James is saying, stop it. Don't think that way. Understand, and you know this, there's a sense in which I'm preaching to the choir. In the midst of trials and difficulties, Satan is fast at work. Job's trials and troubles, unbeknownst to Job, were satanic. God sovereignly stepped back, but it was Satan that was destroying. It was Satan that was trying to crush him. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. In the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your difficulties, if you find yourself thinking false thoughts about God and his concern for you, those aren't coming from the Spirit of God. In the church, even today, I think 
is being, not this church, but in the church at large, if you look at popular materials that tell you how to deal with trials, I think, without overstating it, that what is said in 1 Timothy 4.1, some of what passes for Christian advice of how to deal with your troubles is doctrines of demons. And what James is telling us is in the midst of those hardest times, we have to make sure that we are protecting ourselves. When you are in the midst of a trial and a struggle, that's not the time to say, okay, I give up. That's the time to say, Lord, help me. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to fail. I don't want to look away from you. Over and over and over in my own personal life, I keep going back to Philippians 4. In fact, why don't you turn over to Philippians 4. And many of you are very familiar with this, but understand the context in which I am quoting it. It has to do with this idea of don't be deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. As James is exhorting his original hearers, he's exhorting me and he's exhorting you. And the Spirit of God telling us, do not be deceived. And I keep coming in my own life back to Philippians 4. Paul says, beginning at verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Verse 6, great instruction for trials. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. All beautiful instruction for us. Verse 8, finally, brethren... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If you don't want to be deceived, do this. Dwell on what's true, what's lovely, what's pure. I have Philippians 4.8 in big letters printed out and taped to a whiteboard in my office. And it's not so that I can refer other people to it, it's for me. To know that no matter what's going on, no matter how out of control things seem, I can think on what's true and avoid deception. And I think that's what James is exhorting all of us to do when he says, don't be deceived. Our circumstances can cause us to question God. Job's wife had a very logical reaction to the death of her kids and the loss of all of their money. I say it's logical, I didn't say it's right. Curse God and die. We can't be that way. And yet that's what Satan will be whispering in your ear when your body fails. And when your finances fail and when your life situation is difficult and when your kids are off the track. Don't be deceived by your circumstances. And I think one of the keys is the second point because James doesn't just say don't be deceived. He gives a reminder of some profound theology in verse 17, which is our second guard, so to speak. Guarding your mind. First, don't be deceived by circumstances. Second, trust that God is good. Trust that God is good. Verse 17 says this, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, James is really, he's tying this all in. He's giving you the good corrective and the good protection. He wants you to think, first and foremost, about God correctly. He wants you to think 
rightly about who God is. Satan's original attack had many fronts, but if you go back to the original attack that Satan did against Eve, in part, it was impugning the character of God. God's holding out on you. There's something better you could have if you took of this fruit and God doesn't want you to have it. You can be like God. The implicit thing is God's just treating you badly. I can't tell you the number of times I've bumped into Christians who think God is treating them badly. And I'm sympathetic because I know what hardship is. I know how difficult it is, which is why we have to make sure we're not deceived. And it's why James gives this very clear corrective. Think back to verse 13. James has said, God's not the one tempting you. God's not malicious. God's not trying to plant evil thoughts in your hearts. These inner desires you have to disobey, they don't come from God. God's not some sadistic person who's trying to hurt you. And he he corrects it and makes it clear. Every good thing given and every perfect gift, in other words, what God gives is only good for you. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is really the same idea. It's one thought. It's not separate things. It's an idea that God is a continual giver of only good things. As his children, good things are continually coming down from God above to his children here on the earth. You could almost see James lovingly telling someone, look, this is not the time to shake your fist at God. This is time to recognize that God is your loving Heavenly Father. He is teaching a very clear theology that God is a good God. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down if you want to look at it later. There's an illustration in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, where Jesus is telling people to ask of God. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And part of his reason is that, look, You look around you. Even sinful humanity gives good things to their kids. You know, your kid wants food. You're not giving them a rock. Kid asks for a fish. You're not giving them a snake. He said, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? The point is we have to continually, even when we think we've been dealt a bad hand, You have to realize the problem isn't with the hand, it's with our thinking. It's with our understanding. Testing and trials bring about Christian maturity, but quite often we are made mature kicking and screaming against it. Romans 8, 28, all fits into the goodness of God. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All of these things are a manifestation of the fact that God is a good God. And what we have to remember when we live in a chaotic world and things are not good and health fails and tragedy strikes our family and financial ruin is on the doorstep, even in the midst of all those things, we have to remember that God loves us and He cares for us and God is still good. He paints an interesting picture, and I'll just try and go through it fairly quickly. This idea of the Father of Lights is not something that jumps out at most of us. If you've heard it taught before, then maybe it will jump out to you. But when he talks about God, he says, every good thing given and every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of Lights. And that's not a phrase that jumps out at me, at least. 
to convey a meaning, but remembering that this was a Jewish context, it appears that this is tied into God as the creator. Some of this apparently is related to some thoughts of a Jewish philosopher, but it ties into the sun and the moon and the stars. And it's important for me to explain this a little bit because of what's said later and how it relates to this. But if you look in the original Greek, it doesn't say, it's not translated wrongly when it says the father of lights, but in the original Greek, there's an article in front of light. So it's father of the lights in a literal sense, which is pointing out a specific reference. And I think it ties in, in its simplest core understanding to what's contained in Genesis 1. What did God do? He created light. Genesis 1 beginning at 14, said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to get light on the earth. And it was so, verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. He's talking about the sun and the moon and everything created in the heavens. And at the end of verse 18, after it explains all this, and it says, God saw that it was good. Just like with everything else God created, when God created the lights, the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens, it was a good thing. And my study leads me to believe that some of this was conveyed in the mindset of a contemporary Jewish hearer of that would understand that reference to God in all of his creative glory. There's a similar reference to similar thoughts in Psalm 136. But in the midst of trials, in the midst of those types of traumas, James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought it would be comforting to the individuals to whom he was writing, which means he thought it would be comforting to us to understand that not only is God giving good gifts, but God is the creator of everything that exists. This is all his. He cares for us, even when you, in the daytime, have light to see where you're going. And when there's a full moon and you look up at the stars, it's supposed to remind us of the creative power and goodness of God. God often does great things through great pain. Our salvation came through incomprehensible pain. Jesus was beaten, mistreated, accused, on and on. He endured physical pain of a barbaric form of torture, but beyond that, and Pastor Steve has helped me see this more clearly than anybody that I've ever been taught, we can't comprehend what it was for the Father to turn his back on the Son through the most infinite pain we could comprehend, the greatest good that we could ever imagine came about. And on a far lesser scale, but equally true, when we endure pain and hardship, it can be used by God to bring about greater good. You never know how God might use your pain and your hardship, not only to grow you, but to encourage others, to grow others. Incredibly encouraging when when Debbie was first diagnosed with cancer. The number of 
people at Lakeside that came up to us and we found out they'd been through it. They had walked through those shoes. The encouragement they could give us, the encouragement they helped us with, no matter what you're going through, God is there and he's good. So don't be deceived by your circumstances. Trust that God is good. And a third aspect of guarding your mind is remember that God never changes. Remember that God never changes. Rereading at the end, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in this phrase, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And I think this imagery ties back in to the lights. But James is making another profound theological point which should encourage us and comfort us, which is that God doesn't change. Now there's a theological term for that. It says that God is immutable. It just means God never changes. Who he was is who he is. God cannot change. We haven't gotten there yet. Hebrews 13.8 is going to teach us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But think about it. We are right now studying a book written almost 2,000 years ago. We're studying a letter written to believers almost 2,000 years ago. Part of why it's so relevant and encouraging to us is if God said it then, it matters now. God's not some fickle despot who made these rules and now he's made these rules and maybe that applies, maybe it doesn't apply. In the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the trials, there's a reason we can study Hebrews chapter 11 and look at all these examples of faith because it's the same God who hasn't changed. Now again, tying this in, the reference is probably fitting very well with the Father of Lights when you think about what the sun and the moon and the stars do. I was not a believer when I was at Florida State, and so my time there was not a good time. I did take a class on astronomy. It was a bad class for me to take because every time you lean back to look at, what do they call the uh, building? You see the stars above you? Planetarium. Every time I sat down and I fell back, I fell asleep. So, um, But I do remember a couple of days before I fell asleep when they would do stuff. Is It's amazing how everything's moving. I mean, it is. It's not sitting still. It's all moving around. And that's not a new discovery by us in the 20th or 21st century. It's always fascinating. You watch shows about old astronomers who could, is that the right word, astronomers? Way back ancient cultures that were tracking They understood. They knew things because everything was moving. And they knew that the sun moved and the moon was in the same place. And when the sun moves throughout the day, shadows move and shift. So there was such a thing as a sundial because it's moving. And you know, depending on the time of day, well, if I wait a few minutes, that shadow will come over here and it will protect me. Here's the point. All of that light, all of the movement of the universe, everything is constantly moving. Shadows are shifting. And his ultimate point is that unlike everything else that's moving and shifting in shadows, God is certain. He's fixed. 
He doesn't change. In the daytime, no matter where the shadows are going of the sun and everything else, God is constant. And at night, when the stars are moving throughout the sky, God is constant. God doesn't change. That truth is taught in the Old Testament. It's taught in the New Testament. I think I've shared this before. I never understood the words of that one hymn, There is no shadow of turning with thee, and yet the next pert, if I'd have known, thou changest not. That's all tied into all of this. And so what God has promised isn't changing because God isn't changing. So when God says in Hebrews 13, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, quoting truth taught in the Old Testament, we know that even in the midst of our storms, even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of the weakness of our flesh, when we are doing a horrible job of fighting off temptation, God is there and he doesn't change. And his forgiveness is certain. One of the hardest things for believers to do, particularly if they've fallen into sin, is to remember that God still loves them. You can start thinking, well, I've blown it. How could God love me? The way God could love you is God never changes. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it paid the penalty for your sin if you were his child forever. Past, present, future. Which means no matter what you're enduring, no matter what trial you're going through, not only does the Lord not cast you away, he's holding you in his hand like a loving father. I'm just going to touch briefly on a a last point. But in guarding your mind, don't be deceived by circumstances. Trust that God is good. Remember that God never changes. And I don't like my phraseology. It's one of those times I wish I could rewrite my point because I don't like it. Um, I'll just say this. Rejoice that God saved you. Rejoice that God saved you. That's better than what I wrote. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, there's a sense in which probably for the early church, they uniquely were the first fruits of all those who would come to faith in the church universal for all time. But for us, the encouragement should be this. In the exercise of his will, God brought us forth. When you think about your life and you think about your circumstances and you think about your struggles and when you think about your sins, if you know Jesus Christ, understand this, he chose to save you anyway. Period. And he doesn't change. His choice of you doesn't change. I used to be a little sanctimonious and I think wrongly look down at people who question God in the midst of troubles. I think it was sanctimonious because that just happens to be an area where I don't struggle in the same way as other people do. And I've got so many struggles. I've got a catalog of areas in which I struggle. just shows the foolishness when I look down on somebody else who was struggling and questioning God. And I think in my mind, although I never articulated it, I I hope I didn't articulate it because it would have been a foolish thing to tell people, 
I think in my mind, I'd almost come to the point where I thought, well, if you question God, you're not spiritual. And I was struck by, and I think corrected, and, and it's not a fully developed thought, and, but Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus knew ultimately, as the eternal Son of God, the answer to those questions. I think there's a reflection, though, of the anguish of our suffering. His suffering was incalculable, far beyond anything we would ever face. But the Bible makes it clear, Jesus knows what we're going through. Jesus understands. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let me close our teaching this morning with this encouragement because I think that's dealing with the exact same issue. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what your unique challenges are. I don't know the struggles of your heart. But let me encourage you with this truth. God chose to save you if you're his child. God chose to exercise his will to make you a part of his kingdom. Jesus chose to lay down his life to redeem you. And once he does, he's not throwing rocks at us because of how weak we are. He's not making fun of us because we struggle and we fall and we stumble over and over again. And while he lovingly corrects and disciplines us and encourages us, even when we failed for the 10,000th time and our struggles don't seem to go away, he's still not casting us out. And even in our weaknesses, our Savior can sympathize with us. Even when we're tempted and we think we're the only persons in the world that have ever been tempted this way, understand Jesus can understand your temptation. So understand, if life is overwhelming you right now, if you're struggling, don't run from God, turn to God. Verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, there are many of us who need your mercy and your grace and your help right now. Lord, in the midst of the trials of life, and they are many, and they are relentless, and they come from every direction, and at times, Lord, it seems like we finally turned a corner and then the next bus coming around the corner hits us. In it all, Lord, you're there for us. You're not trying to harm us. You're doing us good. You're not turning your back on us. You've chosen us and you're showering us with your love even in the midst of hardship. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us realize this. Lord, if any of my brothers and sisters are struggling or doubting or, or really just going through a time of doubt, I pray that you would encourage them by these truths. And I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you. I pray, Lord, that I would turn to you, that we would all turn to you.
Because in the midst of our need, you're the place where we can find mercy and help. Lord, as we transition into our main service, I pray for Pastor Steve that you'll give him great strength and energy. Lord, I pray that your spirit would empower him in spite of the travels and all of the things that he and Michelle have done. I pray that you give him great energy so that he can proclaim your truth. And I pray that our hearts would be receptive and that by your spirit we would have ears to hear. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.